So we're in the middle of a series that we started at the beginning of the summer, starting in Romans chapter 12 and going through Romans chapter 15. This series really is based on a hinge verse right at the beginning of Romans 12 that says, therefore, by the mercies of God. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul has presented what God has done in order to save us. And not just rescue us from our sin and give us eternity, but also give us his spirit and let us live out the life that he's called us to. And he did all of that not because we earned it, deserved it, or even ever could have earned it, and yet he did it. And so then Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, by the mercies of God, live like this. And just about everything he talks about in the next three chapters is relationships. It's how we interact with one another as believers, how we interact with non-believers, how we interact with the government. There's all these things on relationships. All of it's centered on this idea that God did so much for us, bringing us into relationship with him. Now you live this way. Not because people always deserve it, not because it's easy, but because of all I've done for you, I want you to do it now. That's what this series is. And today we're going to continue that same train of thought with relationships. And specifically, relationships among believers, especially among denominations. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for welcoming us through your Son into your kingdom, for loving us and forgiving us, for granting us your Spirit to live this life. Lord, would you take this time now and speak to us? Wherever we are, use your word to speak into our lives and to transform us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. All right, if you've been here any length of time, no matter what your background is, you have likely seen the sign of the cross right, when we do this. Um, some of us, like myself, when we do that, we actually at the end have three more and tap our chest three times, uh, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, most of the time, I even hold my hand like this which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these two over here is the full humanity and full deity of Christ. Um, it's an Eastern Orthodox practice. Some of you do it, not necessarily this, but the sign of the cross. Um, is there an echo in the speakers right now? Or am I just hearing it right here? Okay, as long as you're not hearing it. Um, some of you do the sign of the cross, and some of you don't. It would be an interesting question for me, and I don't actually want a response is to ask you what your thoughts are about the people who do what you don't do. If you don't do the sign of the cross and you see somebody else doing it, what do you think? If you do the sign of the cross and you notice others not doing it, what do you think? I can tell you where I was 20 years ago. I thought it was ridiculous and no Christian would ever do that. And there's no irony in the fact that I now wear a white dress when I you know, stand up here in front of you. <laughs> but that was where I was. Um, in fact, I attacked my, who is now my wife, um, because she was Catholic. And I was very non-denominational. Um, and I went after her. And all of these weird things that Catholics do, you know, they do Lent, and they you know, do certain fast things, and they do communion all the time, and, and yes... Here I am again, doing all those things. 
Um, but how, how are we, according to Scripture, supposed to respond to one another? What am I supposed to think if I make the sign of the cross and you don't? Or, or take it even further. What about things like style of music, drinking, um, robes, I mean, whatever it is, these various things that if you are a Baptist or a Methodist or a Bible church person or a Catholic or an Orthodox, and we have all these various ways of doing things. How are we supposed to respond to each other? That's what today is about. That's what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. If you would, open up your Bible to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. And I'm just going to read this paragraph one more time. You heard it a moment ago, but I'm going to read it one more time. We're going to spend most of our time right here in these first four verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I'm going to stop there. Um, because before we can even dive into this passage, we need to define something. What is weak? He talks about welcome the one who is weak in faith, and then later on it says weak again. What is that word? Uh, because I would suggest to you, and you may agree or disagree with this, that in our culture, weak is bad. Weak is not a good thing. Right? We'd rather be strong. We want to be powerful. Um, weak is something that breaks or that falls apart, where we want to be strong and we want our kids to be strong. Um, that's not the idea. Right? If you get this idea where you start thinking of weak as bad, and then the opposite would be strong as good, even though in 14, he never uses the word strong. Right? Because it's not the primary thing. It's not weak and strong like we think. Right? This is weak. Notice how he says one person doesn't eat certain things and another person does. And the person who doesn't eat certain things, that's the weak one. They're not eating meat. They're only eating vegetables. Right? Later on in verse 5, he's going to say some people think that one day is more important than other days. But the other person doesn't think that. Right? Here is the idea behind weak. It is there are certain practices that certain people believe are essential, are important, are vital, are special for their expression of faith. Whereas other people think there are certain practices that don't really matter. That's the difference. Right? It has more to do with your practice than anything else. All right, let me tell you what it has nothing to do with. Salvation. This is not a salvation talk. Paul does not tell the weak one, you need to get saved. He doesn't tell the weak one, you're adding to salvation. And if the weak one was, Paul would have said it because he says it all over in his epistles. This is not a salvation issue. This is how you live out salvation. This is what you're doing. I mean, if you want to use theological terms, justification is already taken care of. You've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are going to eternity. But how do you live that out? 
Paul says there's two sides to this. For some people, there are certain practices that are really important. For other people, there are not. And I would even make this argument. I would bet that everybody in this room actually falls on both sides at times. That there are certain practices you think are really important, others you think are not important. And sometimes you would be called the weak one and sometimes you'd be called the strong one. But it's not a negative thing. It's a way of describing those people that certain practices are important. I'm going to give you an example. Image in your head. About a year ago, we took a trip to Mexico. My daughter and I got to do something that we both wanted to do for a really long time. We went parasailing. And it was a tandem parasailing. So I'm behind, she's in the front, and they hook you up on this thing, and you don't have a place to sit. It's like just straps going around you, but you're in a sitting position. And right here, you've got things to hold on to. And these little straps, these handles you hold on to. We were going 1,400 feet in the air. I am not afraid of heights, or so I thought. <laughs> Here's what happens. We're on the back of a boat, and the boat takes off, and they start slowly cranking you out. And like every time they're cranking it, You've got to be going up like close to 100 feet with this crank. But every time it goes around and it gets to somewhere in the 100 feet, it jerks. And I'll tell you what, at about 600 feet, that jerking got me gripping much tighter. Every jerk, it's like, oh, are we going to make it? And I'm doing this and holding on to this thing as we're going up. And we get to the very, 1,400 feet. And my daughter goes, Daddy, can I let go? Now, they told us we could. I said, Sure. You can let go. <laughs> and she lets go, and I mean, she's like, Daddy, look at the buildings. I can hold it in my hand, you know, because they're small as you're way up here. And she's like, the whole beach, Daddy, look, I've got the beach. And I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Just holding on. And she looks back, and she goes, Daddy, why are you still holding on? I can't let go. <laughs> and my knuckles are turning white, and I'm just, here's the thing. Holding onto those straps doesn't do anything. If that thing falls out of the sky, holding on those straps does not keep me from splatting on that water. Right? Holding onto those straps, they didn't make me go up. They don't hold me in the air. They're not actually doing anything except for this. Emotionally and mentally, I had a much better time holding onto those straps. <laughs> I could actually enjoy and engage and get something out of this while I was holding onto those straps. Because if I let go, that's all I was gonna think about is like plummeting to my death. So I needed to hold on. These practices, they're those straps. The practices themselves, I mean, I'll be very upfront with you right now. This robe doesn't mean anything. Not really. If I take it off, I'm still saved. Like if I get up here and I preach to you and I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt, God can still use it. Right? That, that's not the point. There's all kinds of things that we do. Lent, I love the season of Lent, but it's not because Lent makes me a Christian. And it's not because if I don't do Lent, I can't be a Christian. Or if I don't do Lent, somehow I'm like gonna be a worse believer or something. The reason I do Lent is because I get so much out of it. I draw closer to the Lord. I see more of myself and my sinfulness. I see Jesus in a greater light as I go through it. It is a practice like holding on that does something wonderful and beautiful for my Christian life. But it's not essential. And it doesn't change me being a believer if I don't do it. If we decide one morning just to like throw every Anglican thing out and come over here and do a Bible church service, 
We're still Christians. But I love this stuff. It is very, very meaningful. It is deep. It is helpful if I want to be mundane about it. But it's not essential, right? And so that's what Paul is talking about with these various practices. Hey, there's a lot of things that the Bible says, eh, either way. Right? I mean, let me give you the example that he uses specifically, eating food. Let's say this group over here decides we're not going to eat food. We're only going to eat vegetables, no meat. The reason they're doing it is because the meat was sacrificed to idols, and they are worried about that hurting their conscience by eating that meat. This group over here says, you know what? Idols don't exist anyway. They're not real. So that offering to the idol doesn't mean anything. Paul says, great. You guys accept those guys, and you guys accept those guys, and don't try and change each other. Welcome each other. Right? This is not an essential thing. In fact, when he says at the beginning, welcome the weak, but not to quarrel. That's really important. Right? It's not this deceptive, manipulative kind of thing where Carol Henson says, hey, you over there who doesn't eat meat, we'll invite you in. Come on over here. And then you get there. Now, let me show you why you're wrong now that I've got you in here. Right? That's not what he's talking about. This is a come on over and don't eat meat. I accept you exactly as you are. I love you just for who you are, and it's not my job to change you. That's where Paul's at. You want to know what we're supposed to do about this whole thing? Let's just say you're something like me. Maybe you're not, and if not, that's awesome because you shouldn't be like this. But there was a point in my life where I would have been watching somebody make the sign of the cross, and I would have been judging them. I would have been thinking, you don't need to do that. That's not important. That's just extra thing. You think you've got to do that to get to God? I would have all these things where I'm judging these people. Instead, Paul is saying, would you just embrace them for who they are? Accept that they do it and you don't. Why? Keep reading. And, and by the way, this was really significant for me. Um, when I study scripture, it does not matter how many years I have been preaching. It doesn't matter how much seminary I've gone through. I keep learning. And in this case here, like, I had all kinds of ideas. I can give you lots of reasons why it's a better idea for you guys to accept them and for you to accept them than it is to judge each other. But none of my ideas were actually what Paul said. <laughs> so I'm going to give you what Paul said, and then maybe my ideas later. Um, notice at the end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. That welcome is the same welcome from up in verse 1. That's what we're supposed to do. God has done that. And then look where he takes it in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Those are fighting words there. Right, here's God's rationale. That's my servant, not yours. It's not your job to, just, to go, well, you shouldn't be making that sign of the cross, or you shouldn't be having communion, or you shouldn't be having that beer. That's not your job. You are not the master. I am not the master. He is the master. We report to him, not to each other. Paul's rationale for this is because of our relationship to God the Father, which makes our relationship to each other different. And it's one where we don't have the right to judge one another on those things. In fact, I love the language he uses. Jump back a little bit. Look at verse 3. Let no one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let no one who abstains judge the one who eats. It's two different verbs because this is what I think happens. This group over here who is not eating meat, 
when they see you eating meat, they're going to judge you because you're defying God is what's in their mind. They're judging you for eating that meat that's sacrificed to idols. Whereas this group over here who's going, there are no idols. It doesn't matter if the meat was offered to them or not. They're not real. They look down on you guys for thinking that you shouldn't eat meat. They despise you. They think you're silly and ridiculous. And that's where Paul says, don't do that. You belong to one master. Let the master be the one as he continues in this verse. He says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, not before you, not before me, but before his master. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Take your rightful place. Right? Um, the other day, uh, there were some friends over our house. Um, my four-year-old son, um, he's, he's different, um, I'll admit. Um, he is not your typical rambunctious, like, let's wrestle, and that kind of thing of a four-year-old boy. He's kind of shy. Um, he's not real aggressive. Like, we took him the other day, and we went to a Chick-fil-A, and a kid kind of pushed him a little bit. He now doesn't want to play on any playground at McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, or anywhere else if there's other kids in the playground. I mean, that's my son. He's just, he's not aggressive. He's kind of shy, except with his two-year-old brother. With his two-year-old brother, he tackles him and knocks him down and jumps on him, and he does all these things with his two-year-old brother, but nobody else. Well, the other day, there were some friends over, and their son is a little more normal, and I don't want to mention names, Keegan Goodman, but... <laughs> But Keegan is a normal boy. He likes to wrestle and to tackle and do all of those things. And, and I'm in the kitchen, and they just got done swimming, and Keegan is doing something to killing my two-year-old son. And my two-year-old's like, ah, you know, doing this thing. And I look up. My four-year-old has wrapped his arms around Keegan's stomach, and he is pulling him away from the two-year-old. And there is a look in his eyes like, you don't mess with my brother. <laughs> and I mean, I, I don't want to pride. It was, but I'm like, this is, my kid is just not, that's not my kid. But it was like in four-year-old language, it was, that's my brother. I can beat him up. You can't, right? You try, I'm going after you. That's God saying to us, that's my servant. Not yours, my servant. You treat that person like my servant, not like they're yours. Right? You don't get that right. It belongs solely to me. So how do we treat each other? We're supposed to welcome each other. The Baptist and the Bible Church and the Methodist and the Lutheran and the Anglican and the Catholic, and the, we're supposed to welcome each other. We're supposed to respect each other's practices. And, and please hear me. I'm not talking about sin. Right? I'm not saying that if somebody like you know, regularly gets drunk, that you go, ah, that's great. That's your practice before God. You go get drunk. Uh, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what Paul is talking about, they are not ethical, sinful things. They are practices of serving, loving, following the Lord. And we are called to let people have their practices and not to judge or despise because he's the master and we're not. And he even gives a great application out of it. Look at verse 5. He gives another example. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. I clearly remember at one point 
talking to Aaron about Lent when she was Catholic. And she was talking about giving something up for the season of Lent. And I remember telling her in my pompous, arrogant, Protestant, non-denominational way, that doesn't mean anything to God. If you're going to give something up, you should give it up all the time. I had no idea what she was doing. I thought I did. I thought I had it all figured out. I was despising her practice, looking down on her for what she was doing. And here's Paul saying, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. This group says, yeah, Lent's a great practice. This group says, I, I don't really see the point. Okay, great. Here's the exhortation and the application. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Here's his application. The first point is, you guys be you and you be you. Why? Because he's the master and you report to him, not to each other. So welcome each other. But there's an application to that. If he's the master, whatever it is you are doing, you need to do it with full conviction for him. You guys, whatever it is you are not going to do, you need to not do it with full conviction in honor of him. Right? What really matters is not so much the practice, but the motivation behind the practice. What really matters is that you believe what you're doing for him. And so if you're going to practice Lent, practice it, man. I mean, give yourself to it for the glory of God. If you're not, then don't. But do it for the glory of God. If you guys are not going to drink, do it for the glory of God. If you guys are going to have a beer, do it for the glory of God. If you guys are going to celebrate communion every single week, then celebrate it for the glory of God. If you're not, make sure you're doing it for the glory of God. Whatever it is you're doing, it's for him with conviction behind it. And um, have you ever seen some of the rituals that sports figures do before games or even during games? I mean, there are some weird things that happen. Um, one close to home is Jason the Jet Terry. You know, if you remember from a couple years ago on the Mavs, every night before a game, he gets a hold of the opposing player's um, shorts, not ones that have been worn, just, you know, clean ones. And he wears them while he sleeps. He won't go to a game without wearing those shorts while he sleeps. And he will go through whatever it takes to get a hold of a pair of those shorts of whatever team that is and sleep in those shorts. Serena Williams, she brings shower sandals to the court each time. Her first serve, she bounces the ball five times. Second serve, it's twice. Every time, this is what she does. I mean, there are a bunch of things out there that sports players do. Here's what I can tell you about those rituals. They do them with conviction. I mean, they, and if they can't do them, it's like the whole game is over. We're not gonna win. We, get, we gotta do this thing. Now, from one perspective, does bouncing the ball five times make the serve better? No. I mean, what if you did it four times? Would it be okay? Three times? Six times? Would it still be okay? Yes and no. They do it with such conviction that I think it actually will impact their game. 
it means so much to them that emotionally, intellectually, uh, it will impact. I mean, if I don't get to do this thing, it's going to make a difference, right? Let me give you my own stupid example that I'm kind of embarrassed about. <laughs> um, so when we started the church, like back when it was just a Bible study on Saturday nights, there was a pair of jeans that I wore. And that first Saturday night, things went so well that I wore those jeans next time. And next time. And next time. In fact, I got to the point that I only wore those jeans for church. And I had to wear them every time. Well, eventually those jeans kind of started wearing out a little bit. <laughs> Even though I was only wearing, they just, they wore down. And there was a point one day where I got them like, I can't wear these jeans. I do. And I put on a different pair of jeans. It was a terrible Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, nothing was going right because I was so fixated on this ritual that like, I just, I thought it really meant something. I have a new pair of jeans that I wear all the time now. These are different. I wear them all the time. Because when you truly do something with conviction, it actually does impact you. Um, do whatever you're doing for him and do it with conviction. Do it as if it means something. Because I will tell you on one side, there are practices that we do as Anglicans that in and of themselves mean nothing. I'll tell you that baptism, throwing somebody in water is not baptism. There are certain things we do that in and of themselves, they're not magic, but when you believe something about God and about the way that he works and about how God works through these disciplines, they have all the meaning in the world. I'm a different person now because of many of the things that God is using in my life and they are Anglican practices that I have found such amazing value in. Do it with conviction. And he ends in this way. It's a little bit of a downer almost. Um, but keep going with me in this passage. Um, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Um, here's the big picture. You know, why do you do these things to God? Why do you do them with conviction? Why do we treat one another in this way? because we don't live or die to ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord. Here's this master kind of language again. It's to him, not to each other. Um, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Um, he went to every area that we know of in existence and conquered all of it so that he could be Lord of all of it. Um, you don't escape his lordship even when you die. He's lord over all of it. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Kind of goes back to that beginning part. I want to ask you this question. Why are you passing judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Whether you're the weak or the strong, whatever you're doing, why? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now the language is getting a little bit more heavy. Um, it's not just that he's our master, but we're going to stand before his judgment seat. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, final application, each of us will give account of himself to God. As you walk out this way, you need to remember that. Whatever it is you do, however it is you live, however it is you treat the weak or the strong, 
However, whatever practice you do and with whatever conviction you do it with, you will give an account to God. Right? We are accountable. And I want to tell you what I think that means. Here's what I am absolutely convinced it doesn't mean. If um, Carol Hinson does one of her weird practices that she does, and I start despising her for it, I don't think the accountability is God's going to kick me out of the kingdom. Like, oh, I, I've despised you, and I've judged you, and I've done this, and God says, you're out. I'm getting rid of you. I don't think that's the accountability. Right? If you are in Christ, you are forgiven. Christ paid your penalty. However, there are still consequences. There are consequences to your actions now. Some of those consequences are natural consequences. Some of them may be God disciplining you. There are consequences in eternity. And this could be an entire sermon, and we have very little information on this. But in some way, even though you will go into eternity, there is some kind of reward system that happens. I don't know what it is. But there is something there. There is accountability now. There is accountability then. And we need to know that. Right? Here's a picture of what I think that accountability looks like, and it really is a great image for the Christian faith. Um, August 8, 1974, Richard Nixon resigned. In 72... Some men went up on the sixth floor of the Watergate Hotel. They were caught. And over that two-year period, eventually it led to Nixon resigning for his crimes. August 9th of 1974, Gerald Ford would exonerate Nixon for all of his crimes. However, for the next 20 years before Nixon would die, he would spend so much time trying to prove that all of this stuff was false. He'd spend all of his time trying to change his reputation, trying to, what some scholars would say, even try and change history because there were consequences even though he was exonerated. Even though Ford said, you're not going to pay for all of this, he still paid for it. There were consequences for the rest of his life. Even though you are exonerated in Christ, there are still consequences. Don't think that forgiveness means you can get away with anything that you want. Because not only are there natural consequences, but God cares enough about everybody in this room to bring consequences into your life. We are accountable. So if I put this all together, when you have a brother or sister in Christ that has some differences from you, and I don't mean differences of salvation, I mean practices. I mean ways of living out faith, whether that is denominational, whether it's background-related, whatever it may be. We are called to accept and welcome each other, not judge and despise. And we're called to do that because God is the master, not us, and we are servants, fellow servants. And if that is true, then we need to do whatever it is we do, whether it's to practice something or not, with a conviction unto the Lord in honor of him, recognizing the entire time, all those actions, he's keeping account. That's the one we are accountable to, the Lord. Will you pray with me?
Gracious Father, thank you again for welcoming us. None of us are perfect. Even after coming to the Lord, we do things we wished we hadn't done. We treat people in ways that we wished we hadn't treated them. Sometimes our anger gets so much that we actually want to be angry even though we shouldn't. Lord, there's so many things that we still struggle with. And yet, you are there to forgive, to cleanse, to discipline when needed, and you don't give up. Lord, you welcome us just like the prodigal son was welcomed in. Lord, help us to have that same kind of attitude with each other. Instead of judging and despising, let us see each other as your servants and people that we can welcome in for the honor and for the name of Jesus. Amen.